Now, we're in John, and we're in chapter 3, and we're looking tonight specifically at verse 7. John chapter 3 in the verse 7, where our Lord Jesus Christ says, Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. Marvel not that I said unto ye, ye must be born again. Let's bow together in prayer, commit our way further unto the Lord here this evening. Heavenly Father, again we look to Thee, we pray for Thy provision and for Thy blessing as we come to the preaching of Thine own gracious and precious Word. We thank Thee that in the midst of all of our needs, in the midst of our brokenness, there is an answer, and we find it in the pages of Holy Scripture. These are not dated, these are not superseded by anything else that has come out, uh, despite what men might say, and we know that men will invent all kinds of excuses as to why they should allow the Word of God to uh, just sweep over them and off them like water of a duck's back. They will invent every premise, why they shouldn't believe in the Bible, and so they'll talk about a book that is thousands of years old and doesn't have any relevance and all the rest of it, and yet we know that they're not out protesting and objecting to the use of Shakespeare, hundreds of years old, maybe Homer's Iliad, again many, many years old, and other productions in the past, because they don't address the problem of their heart. They don't come to face up squarely the issue of human sin. They don't pin the blame where it belongs and give the solution at the same time, which is found in the sinner's only perfect Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And so we thank Thee for the pages of the Holy Scriptures. We thank Thee for the relevance of the book. We thank Thee for the power of the Word. And we know that it has pleased God, this is what the book declares, even by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. We thank Thee for the great number of children that were in in the early part of the meeting tonight, and pray that I will bless them, speak to their heart, mold them, and fashion them into the people, the young people, the adults in time that thou wouldst have them to be. And may they have a big impact for God and for good upon our society in these days. Be with all the families that are here represented at this moment in time, those that tune in over the internet as well, and Lord, those that will come across the broadcast at some stage, maybe down the line, we ask that the Word of God that will be proclaimed will be a blessing and a challenge unto their hearts. So we've come, not just to be comfortable tonight, we have come, we pray, Lord, to be exercised in our conscience, our mind, and our heart. We have come to pose big questions because we know we are not going to live on this earth forever. We know that the day of our departure is already penciled in in thy calendar, a day that cannot be changed, though we might wriggle and move and try to postpone and hold on to earth as long as we can, uh, there will be that time when we pass out into eternity, and we pray that we'll have addressed all the big issues, we'll have sorted out, made proper preparation for the world that is to come. 
and may our families be led by our example into eternal life and rest. Answer prayer to us good tonight. Help us to answer the question that is posed before us. We pray in Jesus' holy and altogether blessed name. Amen. In a very popular and emotionally charged story, Uncle Tom's Cabin, Harriet Beecher Stone introduces her readers to a tiny nine-year-old slave girl named Topsy. Now, Topsy is a proper handful. She's described as wild and willful, a little creature there, the blackest of black faces, white flashing teeth, big dancing eyes, and a mop of woolly plaits sticking out from her head in all directions. At an auction mark, where slaves are sold to the highest bidder. Sinclair, who was a rich Louisiana planter, he buys her, he brings her home to his rather prim and proper housekeeper, and he brings her with the request that she should be brought up in Christian ways. Of course, we know the full story today as to what happened in many of those plantations and realize that many of those who were slaves knew more and practiced more of real biblical Christianity than those who mishandled them. But to the planter, it was all a bit of a joke. Bring her up in Christian ways. Teach her a thing or two. Now, it wasn't going to be easy for that housekeeper because Topsy, as that shrewd leader very quickly discovered, was going to take all of her time and all of her effort. Nevertheless, practical woman that she was, she immediately set to work. She gave the little one a bath. She pruned those unruly plaits. She tried to make her as presentable as possible. And then setting her down on a chair, she sits in front of her and the questions begin. How old are you, Topsy? She asks. Don't know, Mrs. Topsy answered with a broad grin. Who was your mother? Never had none. Never had a mother? What do you mean? Where were you born? Never was born, beamed Topsy. Never was born. Now that's exactly the problem with so many people today. They have never been born. Of course, in the physical sense, they absolutely have. Otherwise, they would have no earthly existence. But I'm talking about in the spiritual realm. They have no personal experience of the most essential birth of all, and that is the birth from above. What our Lord was saying to Nicodemus here when he said to him, ye must be born again. Now, a lot of people think that's a random kind of a thought. People talking about the new birth, like Nicodemus, how can these things be? That's a bit of a puzzle. That's a quandary. Is that absolutely necessary? Is there no other way that I can get to heaven? And they dismiss this whole concept of the new birth. And yet we can't. Because no matter where we look in Scripture, we're going to find it again and again and again. And if the Bible speaks frequently about it, then it's not in our remit to just throw it out and dismiss it and act as if it was non-essential when our Savior says, ye must be born again. And I'm only giving you a sample of text here because the Apostle Peter, 
In the book of Acts, chapter 3 and verse 19, he, re- he describes this experience as repenting and being converted. Paul is writing to the church in Rome, and he refers to this experience as being alive from the dead. Romans 6 and verse 13, he's writing to Corinthians, and how does he describe it there? He talks about being a new creature in Christ Jesus, 2 Corinthians 5 and 17. And then in Ephesians, the chapter 2 and verse 1 and 5, he brings in another companion description, and he talks about being quickened, then writing to Titus in Titus 3 and 5, the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. Now, all of those expressions used here by Paul and by Peter, they all add up to the one thing. They're exactly identical with what our Savior expresses here in the writing of John chapter 3, this passing from death unto life, this being born of God, born of the Spirit, born from above, becoming a new creature. It's all the same as being born again. Tell me, are you born again? Can you say that I have passed from spiritual darkness into spiritual light, that I have become a child of God by repentance and by faith. I have been born again. As we've noted, many in society stumble at this very thought today, and they're just about as amazed as Nicodemus was back here in John chapter 3. He was a religious man, a rabbi, a teacher of the Jews, familiar with the law of God. He had pupils sitting under him, and he was teaching them what the Old Testament Scriptures were saying. But when our Savior insisted to him again and again and again, he drove the message to his heart, Nicodemus, you might have all the religious outward experience that a man can ever accumulate this side of heaven, but you need one thing, One thing that's vital that you don't have, the absolutely all-important thing, you need to be born again by the Spirit of God. And he's telling him, Nicodemus, you can try to climb up the stepladder of good works, but you'll discover, like everybody else, it is too short. It doesn't reach to heaven. Nicodemus, you can pile up all of your religious observances and the rituals you have undergone in the synagogues over all of these years, but they too will leave you so far short of heaven. The poet put it like this, when that rich learned Pharisee came to consult Christ secretly upon his heart with an iron pen, Jesus wrote, ye must be born again. Nicodemus desperately needed a new birth. Ye must be born again. There's an emphasis that our Lord lays on this experience that I cannot dodge and you cannot dodge. It's not the mere language of poetry we're dealing with or a picture here that he's painting or a simile or some kind of a metaphor. What our Lord is dealing with is the language of concrete, non-negotiable fact to be born again. Not only a matter of 
desirability or a matter of advisability, and it is that. It is an issue of compelling necessity. An old Baptist preacher from way over a hundred years ago, preaching to the largest audience you could imagine in London, if it wasn't in his own church in the Metropolitan Tabernacle, he was out in the Royal Surrey Gardens, he was in various other locations. Sometimes, while he regularly preached to 5,000 people in his own church, sometimes 10,000, sometimes 20,000 were there. And Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon said, every generation needs regeneration. Just what our Lord said, ye must be born again. But why? Why is our Lord so pressing? Why is He so urgent? Why is He so emphatic? Why is He driving this message again and again into the head and the heart of Nicodemus as He sits with him here? What is the reason behind our Master's must? Why is it that nobody but nobody can enter into the kingdom of God in heaven without undergoing this radical, renewing change of heart and life. Why should I be born again? Let me give you three answers. We need, first of all, to be born again to escape from a guilty past. That has to be our starting point. We're all historians. We're all writing books, the book of our own lives. It's all being recorded. And for many, this is the major jarring point as well as the starting point. One of those great problems we have, mammoth indeed, is the difficulty of how do I disengage from all the things I've done in the past? How do I face up to and deal with my sin? How can I dislodge that from my record? How can I distance myself from all the sins that I know in honesty before God I have committed? How can I do this? Dr. Stalker, and I think... The coat fits him very well, given his name. He talked about the dead weight of past sins. They're a burden to us. They stay with us. They press us down. They stalk us because we can't get away from them by our own devices. And we might talk about turning over a fresh leaf having a new start. That's impossible by our effort. No spiritual progress to God's satisfaction can ever be made until these sins are properly dealt with. Something has to be done about the past. The problem is, what can be done? What's the prescription for dealing with what has happened? Now, man generally goes down one of two avenues on this one, and he'll try, no doubt others will advise him, to dismiss the past. Forget all about it. 
That'll be the advice of many. You know, the thing's over and done with. Let it stay that way. Don't be raking up the past. Don't let those painful memories of former mistakes that you made many, many years ago cause you any lack of sleep at this moment in time. Just chase them out of your head. Dismiss them from your thoughts. Don't be thinking about them at all. Dismiss the past. An old poet said, Our deeds still travel with us. From afar, and what we have been makes us what we are. We can't separate who we are today from what we have done yesterday. We can't divorce ourselves from our sins. We can't conveniently, with a huge pair of scissors, cut that umbilical cord that links us and ties us to our iniquities, and we're not free to act as if we have never committed them, as if there's not a single iniquity that could be charged by God to our name, and it's a big mistake to think that just pretending we forget about them or giving a nod to them to disappear over the distant horizon and stop burdening us and reminding us of what we have done. Sin cannot be dislodged from our record simply by blocking it out of our minds. The Bible many times warns us that those sins we have committed are not extinct like the dinosaurs that we cannot easily get away from them, that they find us out again. Numbers 32 and verse 23 contains those very words, ye have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. In Job 20 and verse 27, we read, the heaven shall reveal his iniquity, and the earth shall rise up against him. Can you imagine that? On the day of judgment, the books in heaven are opened, your name is read out, the litany and the list of all of your transgressions, they're brought out, and people in the crowd will be shouting out, yes, it was him. I was there with him when he did it. In fact, I did it along with him. And everybody will be accusing everybody else. But they'll all be assenting all assenting to the written record of God. Ecclesiastes 12 and 14, For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. And then Paul warns us, writing to the Galatians in Galatians 6 and verse 7, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. And we're being told here again and again, you need to have the past addressed. You need to have that whole issue of sin sorted. And unless the past is dealt with, it's going to come back to confront us, stir us in the eye, not only in this world, but also in the world to come. What's the point? Here's the barb. What's the point? In trying to forget our past sins now, when God's Word tells us we will be compelled to meet them again in the future on that fear-filled day of judgment, is it not better to face up to them now? So some will say dismiss the past. Others, they try to dismantle the past. What they do is they channel a lot of their energy into a whole variety of good deeds. And they're hoping 
that what we do now will outweigh and will overshadow everything we have done up until this point that hasn't been so good, that has been sinful. And their philosophy runs something like this. Be better now than you need to be, and that'll make up for the days when you were not as good as you should have been. Build up the good works, build up the charitable donations, build up helping out in society around you. Let people think that that's a good person in many ways. You will be a good person in the eyes of society, but that's not enough to push back the judgment of God that's coming on your sin. Fifty years spent slaving for worthy causes will still leave you without any merit. I mean not even a gram of merit that you can bring before God and say, Lord, surely that's all you can demand because that's not what he's looking for. He demands perfection. You can only find perfection in one area, and that is in the person and in the work of his Son, not in us. A man buys a farm. And as he's plodding around in the farm and examining everything, he finds an old pump on the farm. And he goes to it and he begins to try and operate the pump on the farm. And one of his new neighbors watching him, he comes up to him and he says, Hey friend, you don't want to be using that water. The guy who lived here before you, he used the water and it poisoned him and it poisoned his wife and poisoned his children. They ended up in hospital. Is that so, replied the man? Well, I'll soon make that right. I've got the answer. And he goes away, say, into B&Q. And he comes back with some paint and a bit of putty. And he seals up the holes and he scrapes up the rust and he paints the pump a vibrant green. And he stands back and he's got a fine-looking pump standing there on his property now. And he says, now I'm sure it'll be all right. No poisoning for me. Look at that beautiful pump. And you'd be saying, you're missing the point. This is madness. To go and paint the pump thinking that's the solution when the problem is the water is bad. The water's still bad, sir. And yet is that not what many sinners are trying? What we all tried? They're busy painting the pump in all the exotic colors of fanciful religion and formal resolutions and frequent righteousnesses, but for all their blood and their sweat and their tears that they're expending here on these outward efforts, they're not gaining a single gram of the favor of a holy God. Their sins remain. Do you know why? Because God says in this book, Salvation is not of our works. That's not how we get it. An old Calvinistic hymn writer, Augustus Toplady, we have his hymn in our book, a number of his hymns. He had it right when he said, Not the labor of my hands 
can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite? No. Could my tears forever flow? All these for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. And you know what? That's every sinner's predicament. We can't escape from our past sins. They're woven into the fabric of our present character. And they're going to pass in front of us. And they're going to pain us right into the future. And no amount of dismissing them from our minds or trying to dismantle them by good works is going to do the job. What then can we do? You know what the answer is? It's the answer that Christ supplies here in John chapter 3 in the verse 7. Nicodemus, marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. This complete change of heart and life, what we call regeneration, becoming a new creature, receiving a new birth from above by the power of God, that is the key. And we must be born again to get escape from a guilty past. Then another reason why we must be born again is to get enrolled in a great present. To get enrolled in a great present. People want to live. People want to, in their terms, live life to the full. They don't want to miss out on things. They don't want to cheat themselves and sell themselves short. Well, in order to begin really living, you need to be born again. There's a common proverb that runs like this. There are many ways of going out of the world, but only one of coming into it. And that's true because through the same small door, everybody must pass. The king, the commoner, the billionaire, the miserable, birth like death is an undisputed leveler. It equalizes men, brings us all into one foot, pays no attention to rank or to wealth or to fame or anything like that. You see, Queen Elizabeth in the palace is born the same way as Elizabeth Queen out in some homeless shelter. Each is on the same footing. Each has an identical entry into life. And it's the same in the spiritual sphere. Just as there's only one way of entering into natural life, so there's only one way of entering into spiritual, eternal life. And that's the way that Jesus here mentions the way of the new birth. Ye must be born again. Came across a highly improbable but very suggestive story told of a businessman who lived in a provincial town and he came down to breakfast one morning and he made a rather unnerving discovery when he got to the breakfast table because he picked up the newspaper off the table and he glanced through it and was just about to set it down when his eye caught sight of something that shocked him. Sent a cold shiver down the length of his spine because he's reading down the obituary notices and there is his own name. By some incredible mistake, His death had been reported in the press, suddenly at. His heart's pounding out of his chest. 
And he reads that tiny paragraph once or twice more. And then he springs out of his chair and picks up the phone and gets into the editor's office in the local paper. My name is Brown, that businessman blazed. John Brown. Good morning, Mr. Brown. The editor answered, what can I do for you? Do for me? It's what you've done to me. I don't understand that, editor said. Kindly explain. And he blared at him, you put my death into the morning's issue of your paper. So the editor now is in a bit of a quandary. What could he do? And he's standing in his office for a moment or two with his brow puckered and the wheels are engaged and working over time and he's deep in thought. And then a bright idea came to him and he went back to the phone and he said, yes, Mr. Brown, I've checked it and I'm afraid you're right. We have announced your passing in our paper this morning and I'm very sorry, but, and he added this hopefully, I'll tell you what I'll do. We'll put you in the births column tomorrow. Now, that's what Jesus does. He puts that soul formally dead in sins, headed for a lost eternity, that soul that he has stirred up to seek after him and look for his salvation. He puts him into the births column. He may be and he is spiritually dead in trespasses and sins. He may be and he is totally insensible to the things of God feeling. What relevance has any of this to me? He may be as he is with no appreciation of eternal issues. He may spiritually be darker than midnight. But Jesus Christ can give him new life. He can introduce him into a realm that he never explored before of marvelous realities. He can bring him to an experience that defies all description into a life that is packed with enormous potential so that he can say and say properly, I have just started living. Christ can do that. He can do it for you. He has done it for so many. And he can do it now. You must be born again in order to get enrolled on this great present into this new life. Why should I, why should you be born again? To get escape from a guilty past. Also to get enrolled in a great present. And in closing, we're going to give you another reason why we must be born again to get entrance into a glorious paradise. People, when you ask them, well, where do you hope to go after you die? Oh, I hope to go to heaven. I have many friends from various avenues of life on Facebook. And it seems, and it's a growing trend, that no matter who dies, no matter what life they have lived, no matter if they've known Christ or not known Him, lived to the glory of God or not, they're resting in peace. According to the comments that are made, they've all made it to heaven. They're all looking down on us from heaven here as we live on earth. Now, that's not reality at all. That's not what the Bible teaches at all. 
Heaven is closed. I have to say it. It is barred. It is sealed up to all of those who have no personal experience of the new birth, of regeneration, which was why our Lord said what he did to Nicodemus. Had Nicodemus not needed the new birth, Jesus would never have said, ye must be born again. Had I not needed it, he never would have said to me through Scripture, ye must be born again. If you didn't need it, if there was some other way to get to heaven, he wouldn't be saying to you as he is tonight, you must be born again. There is no other way of entrance into God's heaven. That's the way we get entrance into this glorious paradise of God in Liverpool many years ago. And if you go to Liverpool and you see the big Anglican cathedral, to mines it looks impressive, to others it looks like a monstrosity, big sandstone building, J.C. Ryle was bishop in Liverpool when they were putting that up, and he didn't want it. He wanted to stay in his little village church and be bishop from there, and he did. An incredible man, evangelical man in his pulpit. And Ryle said, you may be saved and reach heaven without Many things that men reckon to be of great importance without riches, without learning, without books, without worldly comforts, without health, without house, without land, without friends. He's saying you can be saved and reach heaven without all of those things. But here's the point. But without regeneration, being born again, you will never be saved at all. He went on to say, without your natural birth, you would never have lived and moved. Without a new birth, you will never live and move in heaven. Now, we've been thinking about John 3 and verse 7. Just earlier in John 3 and verse 3, how conclusive is this? Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, truly, truly, I'm putting my stamp of divine authority on this. I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Again, in verse 5, in the same chapter, Jesus answered, Verily, verily, again, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Can't get in. Are you going to get in? Are you born again? We need to think seriously in these things. Without the new birth, no pardon for past sins. Without the new birth, no purpose for present existence. Without the new birth, no prospect of heaven because those holy gates forever bar pollution, sin, and shame. And when you would find the gates of heaven to be firmly closed on you, the only gates that lie open are the ones we thought about in another context this morning, are the grim, gnarled gates of hell. And beyond those gates, there is nothing but woe and tears and sighs and groanings and regrets and everlasting torments. 
don't want to enter there, run from it. Run to Christ. Lord, save me from my sin, from its sentence, from its pollution, from its punishment. Save me by thy grace. Ye must be born again.